audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Okay, so as he said, I'm Eric, in case I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. Um, I, this is my second week here, so I just want to start off by saying welcome if you're new, because I know what it's like to be new. I am new too. Um, I'm so thankful to be a part of this body and to be able to worship with you, um, to be able to serve you through teaching. And yeah, uh, the title is Director of Theological Formation. Um, and so I would invite you, just as a shameless plug, to the Equip class every Sunday. Right now, we are going through something called Public Theology. Um, so many of us, you know, maybe we've studied a little bit of theology, maybe we haven't, uh, but it seems like kind of this academic thing, or maybe it's like, you know, I'm studying the Bible thing. But public theology is really trying to bridge the gap between rigorous theological thinking and your everyday life, whether you're, you know, thinking about what it means to be an engineer or technology or the use of technology in your family. Um, maybe it's politics. Maybe it's uh, sex or gender or race or, you know, all of these things touch our lives every single day. And we are passively, most of the time, being shaped by these other sort of forces out in the world. And so I'm trying to help us think more biblically and theologically faithful about those things in that class. So we've had a great last couple of weeks. Like, like Cody said, you can go check out that on the website. Um, and then I'd love to see you come and join us more. Um, and yes, we are praying for Austin, who I've known for, I mean, my goodness, um, maybe 10 years or just thereabouts. Um, I've known Cody for a long time as well. I've known PJ for five or six years, uh, maybe seven or eight. It's been, it's been a minute. Um, and so uh, I feel at home with so many of you already, and, and the people that I've been meeting have been making me feel at home. Um, if I had time, I'd tell you about my beautiful wife, Katie, and my three amazing children. Um, but we only have so much time, and we have to hear from God today. And so um, if you can, open with me to uh, Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, um, you can pull out your phone, or you know, if you're old school like me, you have this like, nice hard copy here that you can hold on to and put your hands on. I'd encourage you to do that. Um, there's nothing like being able to put your hands on it and have your eyes see it, and then when you think about what did uh, Austin or Eric or Cody or whoever preached that, what did they preach about? Where was that? Oh, yeah, I remember what side of the page it was on. So I encourage you to bring a hard copy Bible every week to be able to dive into God's word and make notes and underline. But we're going to read from Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live and he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had 
and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, um, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old, 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we invite your presence, your manifest presence here with us as we feast upon your word this morning. Would you nourish us, build us up, make us more like you, prepare us for this week to be agents of proclamation, of redemption in the broken world in which we live. And would this text minister to us, would it be a balm to our wounds so that we might be a light to the world this week. We're grateful for your presence being here in us, speaking to us, and through your word this morning. We ask for an abundance of help for Austin in this time of grief, of difficulty, of pain, of suffering, that you would ease his father's transition from this life to the next, and that you would give great grace in the days ahead as as our pastor, our friend, as Austin enters into the world of the fatherless. We know that he is not fatherless, ultimately. And we pray that you will show that to him time and time again in the days ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
one man, one woman, one little girl, all united by two things, desperation and Jesus. Their life, their lives intersect on this fateful day in this one story. You have the highest of the high, the ruler Jarius, and you have the lowest of the low, this woman and this girl who we do not know because we don't have their names. They find themselves on this day at the end of themselves. They find themselves with nothing left to turn to and with one singular hope. They are desperate by every measure and definition of that word. And I wonder whether or not this morning how many of us in this room can identify with these three individuals today. Not in that you have been desperate, which it's possible you may have not experienced this kind of desperation where you are at your wit's end and you have nowhere left to turn and this is life-changing. Something has to change now and today because we have all grown up in the West. We have grown up with modern medicine at our fingertips. And if you're in this room, then you can afford modern medicine. You can afford the car that it took to get you to modern medicine. We are some of the most privileged people on the planet. And so it's easy to have not experienced the kinds of things that turn your life upside down and make you question everything. It's easy. But some of us have. Some of us have experienced those kinds of things. Maybe like Austin right now, you've lost or are losing a loved one. And that's no small thing. Maybe you've been a part of a broken home where you've been taken advantage of in different ways. And that's no small thing. Maybe right now your marriage is struggling and the people around you don't know, despite this being a relatively close-knit community in a small church, that everyone has a different perception of reality than what's actually going on. And that's no small thing. But I wonder how many of us, having had those things be true of us, have done what these individuals in our text today have done. Because it's so easy to turn immediately to the doctor when you get the diagnosis. It's so easy to turn to the counselor when you are struggling in your relationships or in your marriage or whatever else it might be. Or it's so easy to turn to the coach when you have the financial burdens weighing in on you, not knowing how you're going to get from this check to the next because you got in too deep, or the job is not what you thought it would be, or the raise hasn't come. And it's so easy to go to all these other places, but these people, they came to Jesus because they were desperate 
and they finally figured out what has always been true, that he is all that they have and that they will ever need. This morning, I want to help us. I want to help us develop some habits because I hope that we don't have to wait until we get to desperation to have the kind of faith that these three do today. And so I want to give you four things, four marks of desperate faith that you can begin to practice today that will, can mark and shape and change your life and your relationship with God and your relationship with others so that you don't have to wait till you don't have anything to realize that he is everything. That you can cultivate that kind of faith right now, today, tomorrow, every day. And I think this text helps us to see and to develop those kinds of things to be able to inject into our mundane faith to make it a desperate faith, and I would argue a true faith. So if you're taking notes, four marks of a desperate faith that you can cultivate beginning today. Number one, a desperate faith approaches him boldly. So we saw it here, verse 22, Jairus, the father, comes up to Jesus. One of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him, he fell at his feet. So in some ways, it might be easy to see how someone like Jairus could boldly walk up to Jesus. Because Jairus was the kind of person in this context who had power, who had privilege, who had prestige, Okay, like he would have had it all. He would have been the person that everyone else looked up to. He would have been the person that many others would have taken orders from. So it's not hard to imagine him just rolling up to Jesus like it's no big deal because like he does that every day, right? But this this makes his boldness all the more significant. Because Jesus was at odds with the Jewish leadership, actually. Jesus was at odds with the Jewish leadership because of what he was doing and what he was teaching. And they didn't like it because it was drawing attention away from them and to what they might have thought, the best of them at least, was heretical teaching. So he approached him boldly despite his standing socially, actually. He was prepared to lose it all because he knew that Jesus could heal his little girl. It did not matter. Nothing mattered as long as he could heal his little girl. It didn't matter who was watching. It didn't matter what they thought. It didn't matter if he lost everything, if she could be made well. But not only Jairus, the father, you also have, in verse 27, the unclean woman. So in verse 27, you see, she had heard, this woman, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. 
So the unclean woman, she approached him boldly as well. She approached him boldly because she was hurting physically. And if you've ever had pain, then this is not hard to imagine. Verse 26, she had suffered much. She had suffered much and was no better, in fact. But she just continued getting worse every day, every week of every year. Verse 29, she had this disease, right? Um, this, this, this suffering, verse 29 And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. That word disease is the same word that was used to, well, you could translate it as suffering. You could translate it as torment. You could actually translate it as whip. So it's the same word that John uses when he says flog. He uses that same word to tell us about Jesus' flogging before he went to the cross. And so what this woman was experiencing, Mark is trying to convey to us in the original language, was tantamount to the flogging that Jesus experienced before he went to the cross. I don't know that you have experienced that kind of pain, that kind of suffering, that kind of disease. Maybe you have, or you've watched someone do it. But chronic pain is debilitating. Like getting out of the bed, not today, not tomorrow, not the next day. I grew up with my mother, whom I love, who had chronic pain. I literally don't remember a day of my life that my mother did not have chronic pain. Migraines like you wouldn't believe neurological pain, back pain, leg pain. See, she fell from a tower when she was actually a prison guard one time. I know she was pretty intense. Um, she, uh, she was, you know, on the job. She was at the top of the tower, probably two, three stories. And I don't remember what she said about how it happened, but that it happened. She fell out of the tower all the way down to the ground and no one was around. And so she had to crawl back up the steps in order to get to a phone to call for help. And that was before I was born. So, I mean, all of 35 years, she's been living the repercussions of that accident. And I didn't understand, really, growing up. Like, I didn't fully grasp because she, she's a superstar. So she just did what she had to do because she was a single mom and she had two kids that she had to take care of. But when she didn't come to my wrestling matches or my golf tournament or other things that I did and that I achieved and that I, you know, kind of, like, showed up for, it's like, when she didn't show up for those things, like, it hurt, but it also wasn't surprising. Because when she wasn't working, she was laying in the bed. Because that's about all that she could muster on most days. And even today, that's probably where she is. She suffers greatly. And it's so easy for us who have never experienced real pain to dismiss it. But when your pain is like this woman's pain, and it's like the flogging of Jesus kind of pain then you will approach Jesus boldly. Like, no questions to ask. Anything that can stop this pain. But not only that, she approached him boldly despite being outcast socially. 
despite being outcast socially. I mean, her unending flow of blood would have, in the Jewish context, if you go back to Leviticus and read through Leviticus, you'll see where as a part of that process for a woman, they had to separate from the community entirely. And so it wasn't just an inconvenience, right? It was social ostracization. But for them, it was a week, two weeks. I can't remember exactly what the stipulations were, but they were back into community living their normal life with their husbands and their children. But for her, like, she couldn't be around anybody. She couldn't touch anybody. She couldn't really talk to anybody because of the distance. And so she had to live life completely on her own. Do you know that when we want to punish people who are in prison that are actually already being punished by virtue of being in prison, what do we do to them? We put them in solitary confinement because there is a real psychological impact that being alone can have day after day after day after day. And this was the substance of her life. So because of her unending flow of blood for 12 years in a small community, people would have heard from the doctors or close family members. This affected every aspect of her life, where she slept, where she sat, what she touched, who she touched, all of her relationships. One commentator put it like this. He said, anyone who has contact with her by lying in her bed, sitting in her chair, or touching her becomes unclean and is required to bathe and to wash their clothing. Her discharge of blood causes her to be discharged from society. She risked in this coming to Jesus, she risked everything, friends, because she had nothing left to risk. She risked everything because she had nothing left to risk. Her gender, namelessness, uncleanness, and shame, none of these would stop her from reaching Jesus. And I wonder, how bold are you? How bold are you? She gets the miracle here. Don't miss it, friends. Like, and it's so easy to miss. She is in a crowd. The crowd is all jostling and bustling and touching Jesus, and they're all around Jesus. And so he's being touched all the time so that when Jesus says, like, who touched me? The disciples are like, what are you talking about? Like, who touched my garments? His disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, verse 31, yet you say, yet you say, who touched me? That doesn't make sense. Everybody's touching you. And there lies the point. Like, you realize that everyone was touching her, him, and yet only one person got the miracle from him. And so is it possible that we in this room here, we're all in some way touching Jesus with our prayers. We're all in some way touching Jesus with our Bible study. 
But because we are indifferent or we don't really believe that he has the power to change everything, that the miracle is going to somebody else. That the breakthrough in whatever the situation is, is going to someone else. Because we don't actually believe that Jesus can, and maybe it's not can, maybe it's will, will do something. But she did. She was desperate. So she approached him boldly. And her life changed. Everything changed. I want to be like her. All right, number two, we got to keep moving. Um, So uh, if you want to have a kind of desperate faith, then you will not only approach him boldly, you will implore him earnestly. Verses 22, 23, we see the father who says, you know, talking about his little girl, his little daughter, like my little daughter, she is at the point of death. I have two little girls. The point of death is a colloquialism for being at death's door. So picture your front door. You're on the front step. Your front door is death's door. You're standing there. That's the idea. Being at death's door or sinking fast. Maybe for you, death is at the door. Maybe it's at the door literally for you. Maybe you just got a cancer diagnosis or some sort of disease that you did not anticipate or a family member. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's maybe something more, um, you know, metaphorical. <laughs> maybe it's your finances or business or your relationships. Maybe it feels like one of those areas is at its very end. It stressed you out more than you can possibly imagine if people knew. And you feel like if something doesn't give, then you're going to break. Whatever it may be, you can imagine, whatever that thing is for you, you can imagine why he doesn't hesitate to implore him earnestly and linger in prayer. And so a desperate faith approaches Jesus and it lingers in prayer without shame, desperately seeking what only he can give. Not only does desperate faith approach him boldly and implore him earnestly, but it trusts him completely. So you see in verses 35 and 36, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. The real test of faith for the father here in the story, for Jairus, was not in coming to Jesus. The real test of faith was in staying with Jesus. Because the girl was dead. Like, sorry, I made it just in time for Jesus to do what only he can do, but then he didn't do it. And so I guess we're done here. 
right? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had a situation in your life that it felt like there was no point in even praying about it because you knew that it was over? There was no way this thing was going to change. You've got it figured out. You know it all. You see the writing on the wall. So I'm not even going to pray about it. I'm not even going to bring it before him because it's already done. And so the real test of faith here is not in coming and ultimately it's in staying with Jesus. Healing is miraculous, but raising the dead, friends, that's almost unheard of. Jesus Sorry, just look at how the mourners respond just to see because they realize, like, there's no point in this. Like, what are you doing? He says, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? One commentator put it like this. The subliminal message here is that Jesus is only a teacher. And death marks the limit of whatever power he may have. And in our culture, for so many of us, we treat Jesus the same way. We will come to him in Bible study. We'll learn from him through his word. That's a big deal to us, as, as well it should be. But prayer, that's just the thing you do right before you open your Bible for like 30 seconds. And then you do it again maybe when you close your Bible for 10 seconds. And then you do it before meals. But he is more than a teacher, friends. He is the God of the universe, the author of life, the giver of life, and he has all power and all authority. And he alone is able to make something change, to do the unthinkable, the undoable for us. The question at the moment when there was no earthly reason to go any farther was, do I trust Jesus completely? completely, not like mostly, not a lot. Do I have a lot? No, like do I trust him with all, with everything? And the question again is what situation in your life has no reason to go any further? So we're not only approaching him boldly, we're not only approaching him earnestly, we trust him completely, and fourth, we wait for him patiently. The divine detour. Think about it. Jesus meets this man first. He says, I'll heal your daughter. And then he, Jesus, knowing what's happening here, lets this woman stop the process, right? Like, if you, if you know about triage, right? Like, triage is making a decision when you're in the emergency room about what is most serious and what has to come first. This little girl who is literally dying right now, or this woman who, not to diminish the years of ostracization and pain that she was going through, but she could have waited a few more minutes, And so commentators call that the divine detour. With not a moment to spare, Jesus is forced to spare it. But you know, you can wait patiently on Jesus because you know he is good, Mark chapter 3, when Jesus heals the many. 
Because you know that he is sovereign. Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm. You can wait patiently on this Jesus because you know he is powerful. Mark chapter 5, Jesus casting out the demons. The book of Mark has set you up to know that this is a person you can trust and that you can wait on and that you can follow. Now you see as much value in the process as the promise that God has given you. And just preparing this week as I was looking over this text, um, you know, I told you about my family, my beautiful wife, Katie, and then my son, Hudson, and my daughter, Elizabeth, and my newest daughter, Lucy. Those are my three biological kids, but what I didn't tell you about is my beautiful baby girl, Noel, who I adopted, my wife and I adopted from India. She is amazing. She loves to cuddle, which is amazing because that's not a given in the situation from which she came. Like, so she's so sweet and tender. Her eyes are so full of hope and joy. And when we brought her home from India, we had to spend a couple of weeks in the hospital because we knew she was malnourished. So there was kind of like first priority is like get, get her back healthy, right? And so we go to the hospital right away and thought we'd be there for, I don't know, you know, a few days maybe, get her all that she needs and then be able to take her home. But a few days turned into a week and then a week turned into two weeks. And then the doctor that has been kind of running all these tests on her that we didn't fully understand walks in one day and, and looks us in the eye and says, well, your daughter has a very rare condition. It's called Neiman Pick type A. And unfortunately, it's a terminal illness, and she won't live to be three years old. 100% kill rate. This disease actually, in fact, is so rare that there's only about 1,000 people out of the 7.8 billion people in the world today who have it, children. And in the United States, only 10 kids have it. And your little girl, she has it. So all that we can really do is help take care of her and make her comfortable to the end. And so in April of 2020, after eight months of pouring everything we had into that little girl, the Lord took her home and made her whole and healthy in his presence. But this text... I'm the dad here. I'm the dad. I'm the dad who would give anything for Jesus to say to this little girl, rise. To bring this little girl back to life. And yet, Jesus lingers. He lingers and he does a lot of other things. But he lets my little girl die. And so the question isn't just one for the sermon notes. It's not just one to ha like have here on a Sunday. The question is, do I trust him completely and will I wait for him patiently? Because it really looks like this is, this is done. Like my, my little girl, she's gone. 
But we do have good news, friends. As the band comes up and we prepare to take communion. Ultimately, Jesus heals both the woman and the daughter. The question is, though, does this passage, does it teach that healing and restoration and resurrection is a promise to all of us right now on this side of heaven? The divine detour led to the death of a little girl in our story. The entirety of your life, friends, may be a divine detour. It may lead to a lot more pain and suffering. I cannot shield you from that. These miracles, though, the way that we should think about them, they are a foretaste of a time yet to come, a glimpse of the kingdom of God, glimmers of hope for the coming eschaton. So when you approach him boldly, and pray earnestly and trust him completely. He may do all of those things on this day or tomorrow or sometime in this life. But he also may wait purposely in order to show you his glory. Spurgeon said, when we come to the end of self, we come to the beginning of Christ. And I wonder if you had to lose everything that was precious and dear to you in order to gain Christ if you would make that trade. And I'm here to tell you that is the Christian life every day, friends. You have the choice to not wait until the hypothetical becomes a reality because it's not fun, friends. You can have that happen today. Every day you wake up and you make the decision that it's all of Christ and everything else is secondary. That I will take up my cross and I will follow Jesus. If that means my wealth, if that means my life, if that means my home or my cars or whatever else it may be, he deserves it all. And I will come to him and I will come to him again and again and again. We must remember that however long it may take to see our miracle in our relationships, in our diagnosis, in our finances, or businesses, or circumstances, or Jesus himself, friends, was pierced for our transgressions. He himself was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I know that one day I will see my little girl again and she will be beautiful beyond all comparison. And she will be all that he made her to be that the ravaging of sin in this world took from her. And that all of us in this room who call on the name of Jesus, we will stand together our true and full selves in worship and adoration of this one God who makes all things new. Do you want that kind of desperate faith? I want that kind of desperate faith. Today, you can begin practicing for that kind of desperate faith. And there's no better place to start than at the table. Because at the table, we recognize that Jesus paid the price by giving his body, his life for you and me. 
for our sins, that he experienced anything and more than what you could experience. So whatever you're going through right now, friends, Jesus has been there. And we remember that when we take this bread. But we remember what I just said, that when we take and drink the cup that we look forward to a day when we will drink it new in heaven with him and everyone else that we have lost and loved. And so as Cody and the band, as they lead us in worship, I invite those who are helping serve communion to come on up. And then as you are ready, I invite you to come to the tables and partake and remember and do it in desperation and longing for what only Jesus can do. And when you're ready, you can take and eat and you can take and drink. Okay, let's go. Come on, let's pray. Our Father, we exult in you today. Let's go is the cry of the hour. We don't want to waste another minute with pitiful, weak, casual, nonchalant faith. We want to be desperate for you and for who you are and what you have done. You are all that we have and all that we could ever need or want. So allow us to take that today and live it every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.